You know, I know a lot of you were parading yesterday, and I appreciate that. And a lot of you were inviting people to church. I appreciate that. We are a welcoming congregation, and we want to make sure that everybody all over this area knows that. You are welcome here. With that in mind, I want to invite you to be praying for annual conference. Some of us are going to be going to the North Texas Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church, and we need your prayers. We're on a move. And there are good things happening in our denomination right now. Exciting things happening. And uh, I dare say that this um, church, and especially this worship community, uh, and your staff are doing all that we can do to make even better things happen. And thank you for your prayers. You know, last Sunday, um, I was in Thrive and, and preached on the 12 steps. Today, we're going to be looking at steps 10 and 11. And uh, after the service, a young person came up to me. Maybe uh, that person's here and said, what's AA? And I thought, you know, we just assume everybody knows what AA is. That, that may not be on everybody's radar screen, right? So I decided I'd begin today by just talking just briefly about, um, about how AA came to be and what it is. I think you might learn some information, even those of you who are, are, are in recovery or have been in recovery. We, we know that in 1935, AA was started by a man named Bill Wilson and a doctor named Bob Smith. These two men who started AA... They really based the 12 steps on an Oxford group who advocated that all problems rooted in fear and selfishness could be changed through the power of God by following four absolutes. Have you ever heard about the four absolutes? A moral inventory of absolute honesty, Purity, unselfishness, and love, and through public sharing and confession. Hard stop. The Methodist movement was started in the early 1700s with an Oxford group. And part of what Wesley's genius was that started this church that we call United Methodism today was grouping people in bands and classes and having them be truthful and honest, holding one another accountable and confessing to one another. It was an ongoing thing. There is nothing more in keeping with our tradition than 12 steps. Alcoholics Anonymous followed these guidelines, these four absolutes, as a way of life and believe that they can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. The purpose is to recover from compulsive, out-of-control behaviors and restore manageable and, audible, and orderly living. And today we're going to look at two steps. Step 10. Remember last week we talked about making that inventory of those to whom you needed to make amends and going to those people and here's step 10. Continue to take personal inventory 
and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Step 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him. Praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that will out. You know, it strikes me that a person who has progressed to steps 10 and 11 is on a committed journey that has led to a holy lifestyle and continuous evaluation involving communion and fellowship with God and the way we relate to one another. That's about as Christian as it gets. That's about as Christ-like as it gets. That's about as Pauline as it gets. And speaking of Paul, we're going to read uh, from Colossians, the third chapter. I think Colossians... um, Three, I think that it really does underscore the importance of what these two steps are about. Why don't we stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? Beginning with verse 8, But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Boy, do we need to hear that again. (laughs) Seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the Creator, in that renewal there is no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, gay, straight. You just go on. There are no separations. That's why the early church called each other brothers and sister. In the country we still do that. Hey brother Stan, how you doing? It's because we all had the last surname, Christian. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We're siblings in Christ. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion. I want to say a lot more about compassion today. And kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God. Just like y'all do every week. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of God for the people of God. 
Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What I love about these steps is this underlying truth that bridges these steps to Colossians 3. And that is, it's the Holy Spirit who dresses us. You are dressed by the Holy Spirit when you are yielding to God to work these things out in you. You're dressed by the Holy Spirit. And it brings about a lifestyle and a wholeness that we cannot bring about on our own. Paul said, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. You know, I got word yesterday through, uh, through Chris, actually. Chris used to be on Dr. Jim Moore's staff. And Dr. Moore was the pastor at St. Luke, uh, Luke's in Houston, a great church down there. Chris was on his staff there. And, and, um, and Jim's sick. And he's here in Dallas. He retired and moved here to the Dallas area. Now, many of us across the United Methodist Connection have found ourselves in love with Jim's preaching, largely through his books. He's written dozens and dozens and dozens of books, and we've used all of his stories over and over again. Some people said, if Jim Moore didn't write it, I don't preach it. <laughs> wonderful stories, wonderful truth that he uplifts. You know, we also use his... Um, his books as curriculum in our twelve in our, our prison ministry. And you know, a lot of the folk in who are incarcerated are dealing with the recovery, right? About 75-80%, some some might think it's even higher, are dealing with substance abuse or or um, behavior abuse or, or issues that need to have them in recovery. And they love Jim Moore's books. I want to share a story that he shared around this topic of compassion that really does nail what I think these steps 10 and 11 are about and, and bridges them to Colossians that talks about the importance of compassion. Jim said, compassion is aware, tuned in, responsive, sensitive to the needs of others. Compassion. Is aware, tuned in, responsive, sensitive to the need, needs of others. Jim told a story. He said it happened on Father's Day several years ago. He said he'd preached the 8.30 service and, and, and then he'd gone to the Sunday school class that he, he taught. And he taught a Sunday school class. And then he was making his way back to his office so he could look at his notes just one more time on his sermon. You know, when you preach and then you teach, sometimes your preaching and your teaching gets all messed up. So you need to kind of center again. And that's what Jim was going back to do. And, and, and he said when he, he, he turned the corner to go to his office and time was clicking away, toward that 11 o'clock worship service, he noticed there was a line of people waiting on him. He said someone was there in line and they wanted to tell him about a friend of theirs who'd gone into the hospital. He said there were two former members that were there. They had moved away and had come back and they just wanted to tell him how great it was to be home. He said there was another young couple in line. He'd done their wedding two weekends prior and they were just back from their honeymoon and they wanted to tell him how much they appreciated the service that he'd done for them. 
He said there were three staff members, just like staff members. They were reminding him of the special announcements that he needed to make. Most of them were saying, don't forget my announcement, right? He said there was an usher there that he had a, a note that said there was a car in the parking lot that was running and the keys were locked inside. That's a trick. And another staff member uh, wanted to introduce him to two prospective members who were visiting that day. And yet another staff member wanted to remind him that there were to be two baptisms at the 11 o'clock service and neither one of the families were there with the babies. And Jim said, other than that, he didn't have a thing on his mind but his sermon. <laughs> he said it was four minutes till 11. And he found himself picking up his Bible and his hymnal and throwing on his robe and straightening his stole. And, 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 and time was ticking away. And he said all of a sudden he felt on the back of his robe a persistent tug. And he turned around and there was his little daughter Jody. She was eight years old at the time. She had something to tell him. And his first thought was what? I don't have time. I have got to get into this worship service. There are a thousand people in there waiting for me to get into the pulpit. But he said he knew that there was a parental call that he had to make. So he, he said he knelt down on one knee and he, he looked her right in the eye, eye to eye, so that she could tell him what she needed to tell him. And she said, Daddy, it's Father's Day and I've made a present for you. She said, I made it in Sunday school. And sure enough, it was a handmade Father's Day card that was made out of construction paper and Crayola. He said on the front of the card was this big picture of the planet Earth. And underneath the picture were these words, to the bestest father in the whole wide world. And then on page two, there was a Polaroid picture that was taken of her making the card by her Sunday school teacher, okay? And it was taped into that card. You get the picture? And then on page three, it said, happy birthday, and it was scratched out, and it said, oops. <laughs> and underneath the oops, there was the words, I mean, happy Father's Day, and underneath I mean, Happy Father's Day was this footnote. Everybody makes mistakes. And on the back cover was written the three words, I love you. And, and, and as he was reading the card aloud to Jody, she was just beaming with every word he read. And he said after he was finished, she wrapped her arms around him. She hugged him real tight and she whispered in his ear, Daddy, I love you even when it's not Father's Day. And he said he hugged her back and he said, For a moment, there we were. We became the whole world to one another. Time stood still. He said, think about what I would have missed if I'd have told Jody, Jody, I have got to get into that service. Can we pick this up right after worship today when we go home for lunch? 
He said, think about what that would have done to her spirit. He said, I was a few minutes late for worship that day, but that didn't matter one bit. What mattered was that God was smiling from heaven, and it was brightening my whole day. You see, what Jim reminded us in that story is that that, that sometimes the others that we have to go to are those to whom we need to make amends, but sometimes we just need to stop what we're doing when the Holy Spirit is speaking to us about the needs of another, right? And we have to respond to those needs. In this case, it was a little girl just wanting to tell her daddy how much she loved him. But sometimes it's people who really need you and they've come to you. And the Holy Spirit has created a special place right then and there for you to take time to be the presence of Christ to another. Paul continued, bear with one another and forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you must forgive Clothe yourselves with love which binds everything in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to which indeed you were called to be one body. And then be thankful. Now I want to end my sermon today by talking to you about a a woman who is a member of this church. She sat in the 1050 service with my wife right side by side for many years. She died a few weeks ago. Her name was Nancy Joy Warnock. Miss Nancy, as my kids called her, and many of us called Nancy Joy, Miss Nancy. And I want to say today that I want to bring her up because she was clothed or dressed for recovery. And I remember when Tammy and I moved here to Dallas, our children, Zach was 12 and Emily was 6, and we were having these home gatherings in the homes of the members, and they, they were nearly every night the first few weeks we were here, so we really did need a babysitter. And we were learning about the hopes and dreams of the congregation, we were learning names and trying to get names and faces together, you know how that goes. And, and, and I came home one day and I said, hey Tammy, there's a woman at the church named Nancy, and she She's from Chicago. She doesn't say anything like East Texan. But she said she wanted to babysit our kids. Tammy's eyebrows went up. We'll see about that. And then later uh, on uh, that week, we had a knock at the door, and there was Nancy standing there. And Nancy said in her always loud Chicago voice, Hello, my name's Nancy, and... I want to keep your kids. I want to babysit your kids, and you can't pay me one penny to do it. Wow is right. We were in a new city, and, you know, were we going to gamble on this um, too-good-to-be-true offer and let Nancy in to keep our kids at least once? But it was better than too-good-to-be-true. It was better than that. Nancy Joy became our kid's grandmother here in Dallas. Now, Zach did tell her, 12-year-old, he did tell her the first night, she told me this, he took her over to the side and he said, you know, Miss Nancy, you're here to babysit Emily. I don't need a babysitter. (laughs) 
And Nancy and Emily became fast friends. They'd go to Six Flags and do the roller coaster together. They'd do all kinds of things. But the thing they really loved to do in the summer is they'd go to Nancy Hood, Nancy's neighborhood pool. And they'd swim and they'd visit. You've seen those t-shirts that are of a tuxedo? You've seen them, you know, a tuxedo t-shirt that kind of makes it look like a tux, kind of tacky but kind of cute. Well, Miss Nancy had a t-shirt kind of like that, except it was a woman in a bikini. <laughs> Nancy was in her 80s. And she thought that was so funny, and Emily thought that was so funny. And they'd swim, and they'd order pizza, and they always ordered it from Papa John's, and Papa John's would deliver spinach Alfredo pizza. That sounds terrible to me. But they loved it. Nancy would leave even when Emily went off to college and even when she was married. She'd leave messages on Emily's phone about we need to get together and have a spinach Alfredo pizza and other things they loved to do. Her son Larry wrote me this week. He'd written a thank you note to his mom. Remember what Paul said, be thankful, be thankful. And in this note that he'd written, he'd written with his two sisters, so it's kind of a collective note. But he, he said, dear mom, we wanted to make sure that we said thank you before we say goodbye. Her memorial service will be in a couple of weeks. He said, thank you for being a dedicated mother. Thank you for always putting us first. You put us first when we were little children, nurturing us, letting us grow, letting us find our way, but always there to pick us up when we fell, and you encouraged us. You put us first when we were a bit older, and you went through the divorce. The heartache and pain you must have felt, yet... You kept the home happy and focused on moving forward and teaching us how to be young adults and independent and have positive attitudes. And Yes, it was a sad time for all of us when Dad wasn't in our lives anymore. But quite frankly, the fun times and the happiness are what sticks out in our collective memory. That's what you did for us. You put us first as we grew through our teen years and coming of age and you encouraged us to try new things, to be involved in whatever we wanted. Never saying no because of the lack of money or lack of ability to move from place to place. Wow. You not only did the work of two parents, you did the work of four or five parents. Girl Scouts, summer camp, rainbow girls. Drill team, soccer, choir, guitar lessons, horseback riding, baseball, junior achievement, theater, and many more things. And we never felt left out. Somehow you found the time and the money to do all those things and more. And we're sure that it was a great sacrifice to you. You know, Nancy would leave me little messages on my phone. I don't think she had an email address. I really don't because I tried to find something from Nancy on email. Nothing. It was always phone recorded messages. 
Sometimes she was griping, and that was even funny. But it was usually encouraging. It was usually encouraging. And you know, she never missed an anniversary. She'd send an anniversary on April Fool's Day, which was my anniversary of being your pastor. And she'd send me, you know, Tammy and I, our anniversary, and she'd send birthday cards. And, and, and even when she was dying, she, she had picked out my birthday card several weeks ago, months ago. She had a sticky note on it. And it said, if, in case I can't deliver this, make sure you mail it on the 17th of May so he'll get it on his birthday. I got it this week. We had a special relationship. She would share her struggles with me in good 12-step form. She shared her doubts and her fears. She was one who worked on her stuff. You know, we always need to be working on our stuff. If you're not working on your stuff, you need to be working on your stuff. And she shared with me once. After a sermon I preached on forgiveness, she said, do we really have to forgive everybody? She had somebody or two in mind. Don't we all? And there was nothing more important to her than here. Worship. She knew that she couldn't really effectively work on her stuff unless she was working on her relationship with God. Unless she was right in the middle of God's will for her. Her prayers. Her love for music and hymns and collective worship. What she loved the most. You know, the most important message I want us to hear today and the message that Nancy speaks to me even now is that God calls us to let Him dress us. And God always dresses us to the nines. God always clothes us with that compassion if we'll just let God and that humility and that meekness and that patience and that forgiveness and love and peace and thanksgiving. That's how the Lord wants to dress us. And how often do we check our recovery clothes to see how we look? How we doing, Lord? How we looking? Friends, when we get serious about our stuff and when we know that we can turn that stuff over to a God who wants us to constantly be in taking, being, taking personal inventory of where we are and when we know that it is that relationship that we have with God that always calls us into relationship with others Always, not sometimes, always. It's that compassion that we lead with. It's that other orientation that we're called to be about. And when we are, we know we're dressed 
for recovery. Amen.